0: FRONT Next, breaking news: Trump hit with a more than $83 million verdict for his repeated attacks on Eugene Carroll. Trump says he'll appeal, so does he have a case? Plus, as fighting intensifies in Gaza, you'll hear from an American doctor who has just returned from the area, why he calls this conflict and what he saw on the ground the worst he's ever seen. And new tonight, a potential border shutdown. CNN learning a key group of senators have now agreed to close the southern border if illegal migrant crossings hit a specific number. Let's go out front. Good evening. I'm Erica Hill in for Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, breaking news, $83.3 million. That is what a jury says. Donald Trump must pay E. Jean Carroll for defaming her while he was president. This is the woman, of course, that Trump was found liable for sexually abusing. $83.3 million is a massive number. There's no way getting around that. It was agreed upon after nearly 3 hours of deliberations. Here's how that number breaks down. 7.3 million for emotional harm, 11 million dollars for damaging Carroll's reputation. The bulk of that money though, as you see, some 65 million dollars is in punitive damages. That's money intended to stop the former president's ongoing attacks against Eugene Carroll, attacks that he continued even today, firing off some two dozen social media posts after storming out of the court during closing arguments. Now, many of those did mention E. Jean Carroll. Donald Trump was not in court when the verdict was read. He'd left shortly before the jury came to a decision. He had to get to the airport so he could get on a plane to get to a political event in Nevada. He did, though, respond to the decision on social media, calling it, quote, absolutely ridiculous, saying he fully disagrees with the decision and will be appealing. There is a lot to get to here tonight. Let's begin with Bryn Gingrass, who's outside the courthouse in New York. Kristen Holmes is in Washington. So Bryn, what happens now in this case?
1: Yeah, Erica, as you just laid out there, it's a significant m- number, three million million, eight eight times the amount that Eugene Carroll was asking for in the initial lawsuit. And as you sort of underscored yourself, I want to sort of put a fine point on that pe- punitive damage number, $65 million, because it shows that the jurors really picked up here on what Eugene Carroll's attorneys were saying in closing arguments, that the only way to stop Trump is to basically hit him where it hurts, which is, his pocketbook. They said in those closing arguments that this verdict was meant to punish Trump for what he did and continues to do, but also to send a larger message that rules apply to everyone, including Donald Trump. Now, his attorney said that he shouldn't have to pay for all the threats that Eugene Carroll received, but of course, jurors not buying that. As you said, they returned a verdict in just under three hours, a jury of seven men and two women. And while that verdict was read In court, E. Jean Carroll was holding the hands of both of her attorneys and then hugging them after realizing the amount that she will receive uh, in damages. And as for Trump, as you noted as well, he was not in the courtroom. He did tweet immediately after saying uh, that, you know, this verdict was ridiculous and that he did plan to appeal. Now, what happens next is that the judge will make the final judgment in this case. We expect that to happen in the next few days. But, Erica, something to point out before he let the jurors go he thanked them and then he said that they don't have to speak publicly about serving on this jury and actually advise them that they don't
0: erica Uh, which is such an important point and he had done that of course so we heard about that at the beginning kristen holmes is also with us in washington so kristen you know as we've laid out donald trump was not in the courtroom when this verdict was read he did react on social media what more are you hearing from his camp tonight
2: Yeah, Erica, he was actually sitting on a tarmac in a plane in New York, trying to get out of there, going to Nevada for a political rally tomorrow. Uh, He was reacting, as you said, on social media, linking this to Joe Biden, linking this to political persecution, something he has done time and time again. And just to be clear before I read this statement, there is absolutely no evidence that Joe Biden has anything to do with this case. Of course, this is a defamation case in New York. So here's what he said. Absolutely ridiculous. I fully disagree with both verdicts and will be appealing this whole Biden-directed witch hunt focused on me and the Republican Party. Our legal system is out of control and being used as a political weapon. They have taken away all... First Amendment rights. This is not America. Now, the one thing I do want to point out here is that one of the things that Donald Trump has tried to do is use this in his favor while he's campaigning, running for president. And sometimes it is successful, not just with his base, but also with Republicans who feel like the system is rigged. And those are the people that I talk to, even though this has nothing to do with Joe Biden, he has managed to link everything together and then say it's political persecution. Uh, He certainly has.
0: Kristen, stay with me if you will. I also want to bring in tonight Andrea Bernstein, award winning investigative journalist for ProPublica and NPR. She also, of course, is the co host of the podcast, Trump Inc., and We Don't Talk About Leonard. She has been in the courtroom throughout this trial. Ryan Goodman is also with us tonight, former special counsel at the Department of Defense. Good to have you both with us tonight. Ryan, when you look at this, Donald Trump and his attorney, we heard from her, Alina Haba, outside court, have vowed to appeal. What do you see as potential grounds for appeal?
3: So if I were them, I'd scrutinize especially the judge's rules in terms of what the judge said Donald Trump could or could not testify about. Now, I don't think they have a very good ground at all on the idea that he could not testify about the truth of the uh, sexual assault because that had been settled by another jury. They found that he was lying. E. That's not what this jury. was about. That's right. This that was, was
0: about damages Yeah, and, and that's, defamation, yes.
3: Which is what just recently happened to Giuliani in his case. It's That's classic law. There's nothing to appeal really there. Maybe they could try to appeal that he wasn't able to testify about why he lied. And that could go to punitive damages so that he has this whopping punitive damage award of $65 million. And he could say, I was going to talk about that, what was in my mind, Mm -hmm. because that's about the jury's Assessment of my mindset and maybe there's something there, but it's not much and I don't think they'll get that
0: the number is I mean the number sort of takes your breath away You know when I heard I was sitting in my office and everybody sort of gasped as we all heard this number um, As we heard it from our reporters live outside the courthouse You have dug extensively into the finances of Donald Trump bottom line. Is there 83 million dollars available?
4: I mean, probably yes, because he does own assets that are worth a good deal of money. I mean, one of the really interesting things is yesterday in the courtroom, when it was wrapping up its case, the plaintiffs played a deposition of Donald Trump from the business fraud trial, and what's at issue in that trial is how much money he has. So he was talking, I have Mar-a-Lago is worth $1.5 billion, and the Doral Golf Course is worth $2.5 billion, and I have $400 million in cash. So they played the deposition in the other case, in this case, where Donald Trump is saying, I have $4 billion and $400 million in cash, and he is saying he has a lot of money. So. He was sort of hoist on his own petard. He has made these claims, and they were able to say to the jury, "Look, he said this." So, does he have that money? I mean, I think he could certainly come up with it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, eighty-three million dollars is real money for Donald Trump. I mean, he cares about small amounts of money in his licensing deals. He would, you know, care about being paid for the robes and hotel rooms that people purchased. So, this is a a very big verdict, and you know, I think. We've all noticed that he didn't do what he's been doing every day, including until yesterday, which is essentially saying, sometimes in the courtroom, you can hear him saying, I didn't know the woman, Mm -hmm. I don't know her. Or when he was watching a videotape of himself criticizing her, he said, that's the truth. I mean, he is talking out loud in the courtroom, defaming her repeatedly there, and then sometimes after court, he would give press conferences, defame her again, and that would become evidence the next day. So that was what Mm -hmm. this trial was like. And to that point,
0: Kristen, we have seen so much of this play out, and we certainly uh, have seen reactions to other legal issues that Donald Trump is facing on the campaign trail. Is there any sense in Camp Trump tonight that this will stop any of those potential attacks, especially at a rally?
2: Well, surprisingly, Eric, I mean, look, you showed all of those posts back to back to back to back, back during the day. He is attacking Eugene Carroll. Well, then when he issued two posts afterwards, no mention of E. Jean Carroll, no attacks on her. And one thing to keep in mind is that he wants to continue attacking her. He believes that he was wronged in this case. But perhaps the message that Eugene Carroll's lawyer sent, which was, if you keep doing this, we will keep suing you, or the message that the jury sent, the $83.3 million message, uh, is getting across to him. But there going to be a large question as to what he will do when he is on the stump when he's speaking off the cuff. And just to give you a little idea of what we've heard recently, take a listen to this.
5: I meet a woman outside of Bergdorf Goodman. I took her upstairs to a changing booth. It was all made up.
3: This is a person I have no idea until this happened, obviously. I have no idea who she was and nor could I care less. It's a rigged deal. It's a made up, fabricated story.
2: So whether or not he can stay on message when he is speaking to a group of his supporters unfiltered and is, as we know, angry about this, that will, be remain, that will remain to be seen. Andrew, can you give us a sense? You mentioned,
0: I believe it was just yesterday, right? There was this moment where the judge admonished Donald Trump because he spoke up when the judge and the attorneys were having a conversation. The jury wasn't in the room, in the courtroom at this point. But he said, I never knew that woman. I don't know her. Right. And he was admonished by the judge at that point. When there were other comments made, or even when part of his testimony was, the judge said, you disregard everything after this with his testimony yesterday. What was that reaction like in the courtroom in those moments? It
4: was really very interesting because Donald Trump obviously wanted to be able to get in front of the jury and say, I didn't do the assault. I mean, what he was found liable for is very graphic. You know, forcibly throwing Eugene up against a wall and forcing himself on her. And... He really wanted to be able to say, I didn't do it. And the judge said very clearly, you don't get a do-over. You don't get, you already had a chance to testify in another case. You chose not to. You are not allowed to come here and relitigate. And he asked his lawyer, Alina Habba, have you personally told your client he's not allowed to say this. Before she could answer, Trump started to say, I don't know the woman, and et cetera, et cetera, and all the things he keeps saying. And the judge only allowed her to ask him a yes or no question, which is, did you say this to defend yourself from an accusation? And it wasn't clear when he was thinking about coming into the courtroom yesterday whether he had in his mind that he was going to say, I didn't do it. But by the time he got into the stand, the judge made it perfectly clear that he could not say these things. And one thing that was interesting is Donald Trump's criminal lawyer in New York, the criminal lawyer for the Hush Money case, was also in the courtroom. And there was a question about, you know, would he be violating any kind of criminal statute? Maybe Ryan has more about this. If he got up on the stand and said something that a judge had directly said, you are not allowed to say. So that was really what was at issue. After his three minutes of testimony, he he did actually storm out. Today was sort of quietly, I mean, it wasn't qu- he didn't talk while he was leaving, right. but yesterday he did. And he said, this is not America, three times as he left the courtroom. And
0: interestingly, his uh, <laughs> former uh, press secretary, White House press secretary,
4: oh, Stephanie yes, Grisham, was oh, his phone went off yesterday or today? Uh, yesterday. As yesterday. he was storming out? Uh, before that, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, it's interesting, <laughs> In her
0: reaction to, to that last night, which, as she told me last night on this program, was, you know, when she heard him say, this is not America, she thought in her mind, this is not Donald Trump's America. Mm. Because... She saw that as it's not playing out the way he wants it to. Ryan, as we look at two of the other things that happen in court, Alina Habba, right, and we've heard some interesting things from her outside of court even today, but not the first time, um, she really got under the judge's skin as well. And she was even threatened. I-, I think he said to her, you're on the verge of spending some time in the lockup. Now sit down. How does the attorney's behavior and performance in the courtroom come into play here, especially as we're potentially talking about an appeal?
3: So in this particular instance, I think she actually hurts herself in appeal because she's basically not coming up to the line, crossing the line that the judge has set for what she's not allowed to say to the jury time and again and again and again. At a certain point, the judge has to say, I'm going to hold you in contempt. Like, we can't go further with this. So I think that's really bad on her part. I teach law students. This would be like a class 101. This is what you should never do in a courtroom because she's also, in a sense, uh, dirtying herself in terms of her credibility vis-a-vis the jury. The judge is probably the most credible person in the room. That's the jury doesn't just have a relationship with the two lawyers, but it's also the judge. He's the trusted source. So for him to tell her, you keep violating this, you're also making false statements that I have to correct on her closing argument, which is a little unusual, I think that's just not good news for what she's doing in terms of trying to serve her client, because that's the jury seeing all of that happen.
0: Kristen, any word from, we know that they have said they want to appeal. Um, Has anyone, any of your sources, and I know you have several, is there any further indication of what they're looking at tonight or is it too soon?
2: It's too soon, but also, I mean, you can hear from, from what Elena Haba, Elena Haba is saying. You know, one of the points that they continue to try and make, and this is something that I've heard from his lawyers, uh, not just in this case, but also when we talk about the Alvin Bragg case, uh, when he talks about anything that could happen in either Washington, D.C. or in New York, is this argument that it can't possibly be a fair case because if the jury pool is selected from a place like New York, he will not be supported because he's a polarizing figure and it's a political... Uh, a political place and that you know any jury of his peers won't actually be his peers. Whether or not that holds up in any way, I am not a lawyer. I am just here to relay the message from the political <laughs> team, which is that's something that they want to continue arguing in the court of public opinion and saying, of course, this is why it's not fair. And the other thing I just want to note about Alina Haba is that she's really talking to, when she gets out there and does this, when she performs in the courtroom, she's really performing for an audience of one. There is a reason that Donald Trump likes her so much. It is because he believes that she is an aggressive fighter on his behalf. So yes, probably strategically, and again I'm not a lawyer, strategically it's not a good thing if you're going to an appeal but if you're looking at just politically and you're standing with Donald Trump and in Donald Trump's world that is how you get ahead in Donald Trump's world is by pushing the line and saying look at all the things that I'm doing for you I have your best interest at heart I am fighting for you and that's what he wants to hear and she clearly knows how to play to that? Look, she knows she knows who the boss is, does she not? Ryan, just really quickly to fact check, uh, you know, as Kristen
0: pointed out, this is this is what Team Trump wants out there, right? That this this is you know this is a travesty of justice because how could he possibly have a fair trial in New York? Just remind us again why this is happening in New York.
3: It's happening in New York because the conduct, not the alleged conduct, but the conduct of the sexual assault happened in Manhattan, so that's why we're in Manhattan.
0: Because it gets tried in the jurisdiction where something happened. Right. Exactly. Yes. I mean, just to, just to put a—I mean, it's it, it seems simple, but I think it's important sometimes to just remind people that's exactly why it's happening here in New absolutely. York. All right, stay with us. Uh, much more to come on this breaking news. Out front next, I'll speak with a former longtime editor of Elle magazine who worked with E. Jean Carroll, testified at her trial, her reaction tonight to this massive verdict. Plus, lucky to be alive, an Israeli soldier, details in horrific detail what he faced deep inside Gaza's tunnels. Bullets ricocheting off walls. The latest out of Israel, and CNN learning tonight a key group of senators may have struck a deal to close the southern border if the surge in illegal crossings doesn't stop. But will it actually help? I'll ask the mayor of Laredo, Texas.
6: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you.
0: We're back with the breaking news tonight. Former President Donald Trump must pay more than 83 million dollars in damages to E. Jean Carroll, a jury awarding that massive sum for Trump's defamatory statements, disparaging Carroll and denying her allegation that Trump had raped her in a department store in the 1990s. Carroll is now responding and Bryn Gingrass is out front live in New York. So Bryn, she came out of the courthouse smiling, didn't say a word. What are we hearing now? Yeah. Yeah, Erica, you're right. She had visible
1: emotion inside the courthouse and didn't say anything to the press, but our colleague Kara Scannell getting a statement from her and saying in that statement, this is a great victory for every woman who stands up when she's been knocked down and a huge defeat for every bully who has tried to keep a woman down. Her attorney's also releasing a statement essentially saying what they said in closing arguments that you need to stand up to people like Donald Trump and this is a testament to it. And they said standing up to a bully takes courage and bravery. So very strong statements coming
0: from E. Jean Carroll and her attorneys tonight. Erica. Fran, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, joining me now is Robbie Myers, who testified in this case and knows E. Jean Carroll well as former editor-in-chief at Elle magazine. She also met Donald Trump about a decade ago when she appeared on The Celebrity Apprentice. Robbie, it's good to have you with us tonight. We just heard there uh, from E. Jean Carroll in the wake of this $83.3 million decision. What is your reaction to that number tonight?
7: Well, first of all, thank you. And second of all, I just want to say if Eugene is watching, um, congratulations to her and the team, she's earned every penny. And I think that, you know, my reaction is one of relief and joy. And I mean, you know, what an incredible thing uh, to happen twice, but let's not forget about the woman at the center of this, which is Eugene who carried a secret around for a very long time, right? And those things are painful. And we've put a lot of emphasis on, uh, you know, talking about um, the former president and the way he's behaved and sort of the issues in the courtroom. I was there. I saw some of it. But I just want to remember that, you know, people forget that women didn't really talk about this much because they were they ended up being the victim of even sort of more problems from uh, people like the president, you know, who said that she was a liar. So, again, I just want to say I think she earned every penny.
0: You, um, as I mentioned, you testified in this case just yesterday, I believe. You spoke about her performance as an employee, how popular her column was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about giving her a raise. You also talked about Donald Trump, saying he was kind and friendly when you met him when filming The Celebrity Apprentice. Did you see his reaction at all to your testimony?
7: No, I didn't. I mean, I I, I wasn't really looking around the courtroom. I was focusing on the nice gentleman who was um, asking me questions and just, you know, um, try not to sort of scare the jury, right? And so, I, I mean, I, of course, saw him there, and he acknowledged me, and I acknowledged him, and I saw everybody, you know, and I said hello to Eugene. But, uh, no, I was pretty much just focused on listening to the questions and answering them.
0: What do you think this this verdict, $83.3 million, what do you think the message is that that sends?
7: Well, I think the message is, is that the jury... Um, really believed her, really believed the testimony, and that she had been harmed in a really significant way, and you know should be compensated for that so she can get back to the life that she had. I think that that was uh, sort of the whole point, right? Was to um, help her restore her reputation. That I worked with E. Jean for over 20 years, and she had, a, a, she had, and still has this rising. As, as far as I'm concerned. Um, a really solid place in sort of the journalism, in writing, but also as just an, uh, a person with a lot of empathy who really wanted to help women. That's why she did this column. So, uh, you know, I, I think that she, again, uh, really deserved this award, and I'm glad that the jury saw it. It was significantly higher. I think that most people thought it was going to be, which I think is really important and a very big uh, statement.
0: Do you think it will keep Donald Trump from continuing to speak about her,
7: do you? I mean, I you know, I, I don't have a lot of insight. I mean, you've been covering for a long time, you know, the, as everyone has been. I, I, I mean, he, you know, he's a fighter. Um, he always uh, he doesn't hasn't been known to pay up in the past, but I do think for I, I really think that this is different. I think it's um, I think she brought a lot of. Uh, a lot of, she, she had a lot to say, right? And uh, what I love is how much people are really reacting in a positive way, saying, good, she's going to get compensated.
0: I was struck, and I don't know if this struck you, you were there in the courtroom, um, but the judge, you know, had kept the jury anonymous, you know, had numbers and, and told them not to share names. The fact that the judge said today, too, a reminder, and we hear this often, it's okay for you to remain anonymous after this. Give us a sense what it was like for you. It's one thing to be on the jury. It's another thing to be somebody who's testifying. In a case that is so high profile, that has so much attention, here we are talking about it tonight, did it give you pause at all to be a part of something that is so public, knowing some of the blowback that can come from perhaps some of the most odd places that you would never, ever imagine? Did that ever concern you?
7: Well, I'm familiar with it, having worked in the media for a long time. Um, I, I wouldn't, I, I was going to testify, I mean, I testified in the first trial and I was going to testify again because I thought it was important. I thought it was the right thing to do, right? And I think, and also I had some specific information about Eugene, and I understood her as a writer and, a, and a, a columnist and frankly, and also a journalist that I really felt it was important that I speak to that because it was important to people understanding sort of what she had done, but also what perhaps she had lost. Um, and and so I, I wasn't going to not testify, but, I, yeah, I think, you know, you sort of think about that. But, um, I mean, you're a high-profile person, right? And, you know, you know how to take care of yourself.
0: Robbie, really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you.
7: Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Out front next, no burn care units, no tools for treating fractures. You'll hear from an American doctor who just returned from Gaza. He's been on more than 50 medical missions. Why he says Gaza is much different. Plus, Biden takes on Trump over that bipartisan border deal, the one the former president is now trying to kill. Tonight, a new push for a hostage deal, the White House ramping up its efforts to secure the release of the remaining Israeli hostages in exchange for a prolonged pause of fighting in Gaza. CIA Director Bill Burns is set to meet this weekend with top officials from Israel, Egypt and Qatar, a sign of ongoing progress as the U.S. seeks a deal. And this actually comes on the same day that Hamas released video of three hostages. CNN has chosen not to show that video. This is the United Nations top court ordered Israel to, quote, take all measures to prevent a genocide in Gaza. The court, though, stopped short of ordering a ceasefire. Jeremy Diamond is out front in Tel Aviv. Jeremy, this is the most intensive effort in months to try to strike a deal here to release the remaining hostages. What more do we know tonight?
8: There's no question about it, Erica. This feels like the most momentum that we have seen since that last truce collapsed in early December in terms of the key players all getting together in Europe this weekend. I mean, we're talking about the people who were able to craft that last deal that led to the release of dozens of hostages, a week-long pause in the fighting, and the entry of humanitarian aid into Gaza. And it's also because we're starting to see some of the details emerge of the proposals that are being put on the table, which include the longest ever pause in fighting that Israel has ever put on the table, up to two months of a pause in fighting, the phased release of hostages, starting with uh, the remaining uh, women, uh, elderly men, civilians effectively, and then moving on to soldiers, as well as the bodies of some 28 Israeli hostages who are also being held as bargaining chips by Hamas. But we also need to be clear that these two sides are not yet at the point of a breakthrough for an agreement here. They still remain very far apart. Israel, for its part, will not agree as part of these negotiations up until now to a permanent ceasefire to see the release of all these hostages while Hamas is pushing for an end to this war altogether as part of this and also hoping to get its senior leaders to escape unscathed. So a lot of uh, progress being made, but certainly still a lot of work to be done.
0: Yeah, in terms of that work that remains to be done, too, as all of this is is unfolding, of course, we're seeing Israel not letting up in that fight to destroy Hamas and its tunnel network inside Gaza.
8: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, these tunnels have completely changed the battlefield for Israel. Uh, When I talk to Israeli soldiers or Israeli uh, officials, they all talk about the fact that these tunnels are far more sophisticated than they expected, and they have really become uh, changed the, the threat level for Israeli forces. They represent an enormous strategic challenge for the Israeli military, but as so many Israeli soldiers are also finding out, it's also a way for Hamas to ambush them and the dangers that that represents.
5: The bullet went in the cheek, got inside my jaw and took a piece of my jaw and on the uh, corner and then uh, went down over here to
9: my neck and stayed there.
8: Master Sergeant Omri Erental is lucky to be alive.
9: That's the bullet here.
8: Kneeling on the edge of this tunnel shaft, he says he was shot by a Hamas militant hidden inside. A ricochet off the tunnel wall likely saving his life.
9: When I turned my flashlight on, I saw uh, a gun uh, um, light, like flash, a yeah, gun flash. And then I felt like five kilos hammer that was inside the hot lava, just like punched into my face.
8: As he crawled away from the tunnel shaft, the soldiers in his combat engineering unit killed the gunman. that? but his brush with death speaks oh to the enormous challenge hamas tunnels still present to the israeli military after three months of war
10: there is uh, upper gaza and lower gaza there is upper hanunis and lower hanunis it is very tough mission.
8: We'll General Nitzan Nouriel, a former member of Israel's National Security Council, estimates that Israel has only discovered about 60% of the hundreds of miles of tunnels below Gaza.
10: We blew up something like 20%. So a lot of work ahead of us. It's not something that can be finished within a few weeks. It's a question of months.
8: Exposing and destroying these tunnels has been central to Israel's mission in Gaza, where it has dropped enormous bunker-busting bombs that penetrate deep underground, leaving enormous craters and often causing heavy civilian casualties. But there is also concern for Israeli hostages held
10: underground. We cannot just blow up all those tunnels, assuming that the hostages are there at least 50% of them. Mm -hmm. So we have to do it slowly, slowly. That means sending
8: troops deep into booby trap tunnels where Hamas fighters could be laying in wait before rigging and detonating them. In the meantime, many Hamas fighters are surviving in sophisticated tunnels equipped with electricity, bathrooms and stocks of food and water.
10: But for how much longer? How long they can stay there? It's a good question. Not for good. They will not be able to survive there because of all those conditions for, let's say, more than two more months. For now, at least, that means
8: the battle rages on, both above and below the surface. And you heard General Nouriel there tell me that Israel has only discovered about 60% of Hamas's tunnels in Gaza. That just shows you how enormous of a challenge this represents for Israeli forces still. And also when you consider the fact that they still haven't killed or captured any of Hamas's senior leaders in the Gaza Strip. Many of them believe to also be hiding in tunnels in Gaza.
0: Erica, Jeremy, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Out front now, Dr. Zahir Salul, he's a medical doctor who just returned from Gaza, where he was treating patients for more than two weeks, primarily in Rafah and Han Yunus in southern Gaza. Doctor, it's good to have you with us tonight. I know you have traveled extensively. You've been in a number of war zones. You have responded to a number of humanitarian crises around the world. You say what you saw in Gaza over the last few weeks is worse than anything you have ever seen. Why?
9: Thank you for having me, Erica. I'm still processing what I have witnessed, uh, but uh, there are similarities between what's happening in Gaza and other crises have been part of, uh, whether it's Ukraine or Syria or Yemen or even after natural disasters. Civilians are bearing the brunt of the war in Gaza. Many children are being killed. I witnessed myself, uh, unfortunately, scores of children who were killed after a massive casualty event in Khan Yunis and they were brought injured from shrapnels. Some of them died on the spot, some of them died next day. Uh, But what's more worrisome in Gaza that in other crises, people have ways to leave uh, the war or the disaster. In Syria, in Ukraine, other places, people had options to flee. In Gaza, they are stuck. And they are stuck in a small area that is keeping shrinking, keeps shrinking. So most of the people in Gaza are displaced. To southern Gaza, we were, my organization was providing health care in Rafah and Khan Yunus. And this area is shrinking by the day. By the time we left, the area that 1.8 million, close to 1.8 million people are living in is also smaller because of the new wave of displacement from Khan Yunis because of the new fighting. And because of that, the, the war is present everywhere. And victims are very close to the fighting. So no matter how accurate are the targeting, or the bombs, or the missiles, civilians will be killed. Children will be killed because half of the population are children. So these are two two differences between what's happening in Gaza and other crises. Mm-hmm. Makes Gaza the worst humanitarian crisis that we've been, we've been witnessing since World War II.
0: Um, I know you want to talk politics, and I'm not. I'm not asking this from a political perspective. But but I know you also told someone on our team that you believe one of the things really standing in the way of addressing the humanitarian crisis there on the ground is just a lack of political will. Do you see anything that would change that?
9: Um, CNN over the past uh, three months have been always talking about improving humanitarian aid to Gaza, to the people in Gaza, to ease the humanitarian situation, to increase trucks uh, through the border crossing from Egypt and other places. What we have witnessed there in Gaza is more short um, coming, uh, more more shortage of food, of medicine, of clean water, of medical supplies, of fuel, uh, lack of communication because of the disruption of communication. So the aid is not getting through. Mm-hmm. There's about 100 trucks getting through Gaza every day. What is needed is about 1,000 trucks of all kind of stuff. People are hungry. People don't have access to clean water. Uh, Patients in the hospitals are dying because of lack of simple um, supplies, like plates and screws for fractures, um, or blood bags for blood transfusion, IV antibiotics. Patients with diabetes don't have insulin. There's no seizure medications. There's no common blood pressure medications. These things should be happening, should be getting through the border. Uh, And what I've understood that there is no political will from the parties involved, Israel, the neighboring countries and the united states of america to make sure that these supplies getting through and people are getting some relief in gaza we don't people to die out of hunger and there are signs of hunger especially in the north we don't want people to to die because of diabetes and patients with diabetes who need insulin are dying because of lack of insulin and these simple things are not happening for no clear clear reason besides the lack of political well, so I hope that the Biden administration hear this plea and understand that they can influence the situation and they influence the parties uh, in, in, in the region, especially Israel, to make sure that more trucks of aid are getting through Gaza and more aid is distributed so that way people can get some relief, some food, clean water to prevent outbreak, to, to prevent further suffering of the population.
0: Dr. Zahir, so really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight for your work uh, in this, on this war zone and so many others. And thank you for coming to share your experience, which understandably you say you're still processing. Thank you. Thank you. Out front next, sources telling CNN key senators are now considering closing the southern border in an effort to stem the flow of migrants. The mayor of a Texas border city responds next. And Colorado voters pleading with the Supreme Court to keep Donald Trump off their ballot zeroing in on his threats of bedlam to make their case, will it work?
8: From executive producers, Park chan and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese American culture and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on max.
0: Tonight, a potential border shutdown. Sources tell CNN key senators have agreed to close the southern border if illegal migrant crossings reach 4,000 a day. This is part of the ongoing border security negotiations on Capitol Hill. It's a deal Donald Trump is, of course, actively trying to kill. It's a deal that Speaker Mike Johnson says is, quote, dead on arrival in the House. President Biden, meantime, issuing a rare statement tonight, calling on lawmakers to pass a bill for, quote, tougher border control. Out front now, the mayor of Laredo, Texas, Victor Trevino. Mr. Mayor, it's good to have you with us. Um, I'd love to get your reaction to these new details that we're learning about this potential border deal. The DHS would be granted emergency authority to shut down the border to slow the flow of migrants. Would that be effective in managing the crisis in your city?
5: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And, you know, as a border community, we're seeing that uh, those situations. But we just can't close the border because our domestic commerce depends on our international trade with Mexico. We are the largest port of entry in the United States, over eight, $800 billion worth, and about half of that comes to Laredo. So that is a reality we just can't ignore.
0: Do you think lawmakers get that part of the equation?
5: No, you know... Uh, you have to live and work here. You have to know what the reality is here rather than the perception. As a border community, we have, to, uh, we have left to fend for ourselves because politics have consumed the narrative which should be about fixing our immigration system and avoiding a humanitarian crisis.
0: Well, to that point about politics dictating the narrative at this point, as we, as we had learned, there was a deal, right? Far from a short thing, but still, Congress was on the verge of getting something done. Uh, And now the former president stepping in, telling lawmakers not to pass it. He doesn't want Joe Biden to have a win. When you see politics playing out like that, how does it sit with you? What do you hear from your residents about that?
5: Well, we're concerned, of course, because we need to be careful with the rhetoric that we're seeing about disregarding federal law or ignoring Supreme Court rulings, Because some people are going to act on those words, and that is too similar to what we saw on January 6th. So we have to rely on the federal laws that that are concerning with federal issues.
0: You you said before too, in terms of the trade, right? And how important that is, and that is, part of the equation, right, that perhaps the lawmakers don't understand because in your words, you you need to live there. I'm paraphrasing what you just said, but that you have to actually live in the area to understand it. We see so many lawmakers, and we see this in both parties, come to the border. They're there for a photo op. They talk about how terrible it is. What do they miss when they come down for those photo
5: ops? Yeah, we're hearing that thousands of migrants are coming over the border, but how did they get here? Why are they coming here? Why are they coming here? Because they're finding jobs here and most of them are not even able to pay taxes. So let's fix the system, allow the workers we need, and have them pay their fair share of taxes. This is the kind of immigration reform we, we need rather than just setting up walls and and doing things that are, are not working. We know what works. We live here.
0: Do they listen to you? Do the folks in Washington ask for your input? Are they listening to you? Because I hear this not just from folks on the border like yourself but I've heard it from you know folks in Colorado as well hoping to find a way to allow migrants to work to, to let them be there they need workers there are ways to work things out a number of mayors seem to have solutions but they seem to be falling on deaf ears
5: yes uh, and uh, re- regretfully that's a situation because it it doesn't work if you just put walls or or put a bandaid on everything put barbed wire that is not a solution because migrants will continue to come. Migration has always been a normal trend all throughout the years. So we need to find out what would work and they need to listen to people that are here and can give them solutions rather than doing solutions from over a thousand miles away. Um,
0: if this deal, the, the, the broad strokes we know, would you be happy if there was a deal passed at this point? What would that say to you?
5: We need to have immigration reform, that's for, for sure. Mm-hmm. And we need to have both parties act on what's reasonable, what's humanitarian, and what's right for the country. We have to follow our our laws. We're a country of laws. So we have to have laws that are, are right for our citizens and right for the country and right for humanitarian efforts at the same time.
0: Mayor Victor Trevino, really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight, sir. Thank
5: you. Thank you. Thank you for having me
0: out front next more on our breaking news a jury says donald trump must pay e. Jean carroll 83.3 million dollars of course this is just one of a number of mounting legal problems for the former president back now with our breaking news eugene carroll just releasing a statement after a jury awarded her more than 83 million dollars in damages in their verdict against donald trump carroll calling this a quote huge defeat for every bully who has tried to keep a woman down. Donald Trump's attorney has vowed to appeal. This, of course, though, is just one of the many legal issues the former president is currently facing, including efforts to keep him off the 2024 ballot for his role on January 6th. Tonight, there is a new filing on that front urging the Supreme Court to keep Trump off the ballot in Colorado. Lawyers representing a group of voters in that state arguing, quote, the most violent attack on our nation's capital since the War of 1812, an attack which obstructed the peaceful transfer of presidential power for the first time in American history, meets any plausible definition of insurrection against the Constitution. Trump has asked the Supreme Court to keep him on the ballot, saying that the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban does not apply to presidents and also warning that a move to ban him would, quote, unleash chaos and bedlam in the country. Evan Paris is out front tonight. So, Evan, what more do we know about this new filing?
11: Well, Erica, the, uh, these uh, voters and uh, their lawyers, the lawyers for these voters, uh, really focused on the on the violence that happened on January six, and that's what they're driving. Uh, they they say should drive this decision uh, by the court. They say that the, you know what happened on January six was an insurrection, and Donald Trump was the one who caused it. And so I'll read you just a part of what they say here. They say Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment uh, is designed precisely to avoid giving uh, oath-breaking insurrectionists like Trump the power to unleash such mayhem again. And they point out, as you, as you just noted, um, that the former president in uh, defending himself against uh, the, the, the Colorado lawsuit, uh, the, president, the, the former president has mentioned that if his name is kept off the ballot, that there will be bedlam, sort of again, insinuating that there might be violence if that happens.
0: Um, It also comes as a Republican appointed judge in Washington is taking on GOP lawmakers warning that they are putting the country in further danger. By trying to downplay what happened on January 6th, Judge saying, quote, in my 37 years on the bench, I cannot recall a time when such meritless justifications of criminal activity have gone mainstream. I have been shocked to watch some public figures try to rewrite history, claiming rioters behaved in an orderly fashion like ordinary tourists were martyrizing convicted January 6th defendants as political prisoners or even incredibly Hostages. I mean, that language may sound familiar because we've heard it in a number of stump speeches uh, from Donald Trump. How yeah. unusual is it for a judge to make a statement like this, Evan?
11: Well, Royce Lamberth, the judge who made that statement, uh, is the longest-serving judge on the federal bench here in Washington. He's a Reagan appointed judge, and he's handled uh, dozens of these cases, these January 6th cases. And so the fact that he is speaking out really tells you, why, you know, wh- what he's thinking, especially reacting to what you're hearing from the former president and his allies uh, from the campaign trail. Listen to the former president and some of his allies talking about this.
4: I have concerns about the treatment of January 6th hostages.
11: When people
9: who love our country
5: protest on January 6th in Washington, D.C., they become hostages.
11: And the, the judge, George Lamberth, uh, says that this is preposterous. Um, he says that the, these people, and in this case, he was uh, resentencing a January 6th uh, defendant who uh, he says has shown uh, no remorse whatsoever for what happened on January 6th. and that is encouraged by some of the words you're hearing from the campaign trail from people on the Capitol. Now where this judge is sitting right? you can see the Capitol. you can see the scene of the of the, of the violence of January 6 and, and because of where these judges sit, uh, you know they they have they've been grappling with all of these cases that have been coming before them. more than 1,200 of these cases, uh, Erica. so they know, Firsthand, what went on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Evan, appreciate it as always. Thank you. And thanks sure. to all of you for joining us tonight. AC360 starts right now.
11: Quality sleep is
6: essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature, quiets their snores. Sleep number does that. Sleep better together.